Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to the A to Z of David Bowie. I'm Mark Riley, and that colourful character is Rob Hughes. As you'll be aware, the A to Z of David Bowie is free to download. <laughs> Lunacy. But if you'd like to support us along the way and be a member of an exclusive Bowie club, you can, and here's how. There's an exclusive Bowie members club called Cheap Things, and for just $5 a month, wow, you can be part of it. Right, so now you're thinking $5 isn't much, but what exactly will I get for my hard-earned cash? Well, in short, you'll get lots of great new exclusive material delivered to your door. Well, computer actually, Mark. Via a system called Patreon. That's right, Mark. Patreon is a payment system that allows you to contribute your monthly subscription and offers you a portal to access the exclusive material. Material such as... Interviews with Bowie's cohorts and friends. There'll be regular filmed Bowie quizzes. Bowie guitar tutorials. Unreleased archive written material. Competitions. And perhaps most impressively, short films featuring the Cheap Things team. Ah, that'll be me, Mark, Howard Nock and Jason Reed. Visiting various Bowie places of interest. And much more besides. All this for just $5 a month. So if you can't resist, simply go to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash cheap things, or one word, and join up. There's also a website, bowie at cheapthings.com. Book early. S is for Bruce Springsteen. Bruce Frederick Joseph Springsteen was born on September 23rd, 1949 at Monmouth Medical Centre, Wales. No, he wasn't. Is, is Monmouth in Wales? It is, yes. Oh, right, okay. No, he was actually in Long Branch, New Jersey. Oh, I always get those mixed I up. I thought he was a right fraud then for a moment. <laughs> he spent his child in Freehold Borough on South Street. Ah, that's not in Wales, is it? Actually, he's born on the same date as my wife. Fancy oh, that. Go. I wonder if he knows. Oh, uh, his father, Douglas Frederick Springsteen, was of Dutch and Irish ancestry and worked as a bus driver, amongst other jobs, but he was unemployed most of the time. Springsteen said his mother, Adele Anne, a legal secretary and of Italian ancestry, was the main breadwinner in the family. Bruce's father suffered from mental health issues throughout his life, which worsened in his later years. Right. So uh, Springsteen's last name is of Dutch origin, literally translating to jumping stone, but more generally generally mean in a kind of stone used as a stepping stone in unpaved streets or between two houses. That's quite specific, isn't it? It is. I mean, it's just a kind of a strange <laughs> way to go. Uh, who chooses a family name? I don't know. Isn't it down to uh, well, either where you've come from or where you live? Well, so that would make sense here. It does a little bit, um, but I mean, it's not very glamorous, is no. it? I'm sure you could have picked up something nice. I mean, do you know, Riley, apparently if you've got EY at the end of your name, yes. it means that you live near a stream. Is that? That's nice. I think that's so. Astral, that's nice. I've no well, I mean, idea. What... That's almost like doormat 
isn't it? Well, like, yeah. Bruce Dormart on the E Street Band. It wouldn't have worked. I mean, I'm not really sure where Hugh's coming. I'm guessing it's Son of Hugh. It's pretty Welsh standard, isn't it? I think. <laughs> <laughs> you might even... Well, Bruce Springsteen's Welsh. You're Welsh. Oh, you, you know need what? to have a DNA test, wow. mate. Wow. I always get you two mixed up. Anyway, uh, the Springsteens are among the early Dutch families who settled in the colony of New Netherland in the 1600s. Wow. Okay. So Springsteen attended the St. Rose of Lima Catholic School in Freehold Borough, where he was at odds with the nuns and rejected the strictures imposed upon him. In a 2012 interview he gave, he explained that it was his Catholic upbringing rather than political ideology that most influences music. In ninth grade, Springsteen began attending the public Freehold High School, but didn't fit in there either. Former teachers said he was a loner who wanted nothing more than to play his guitar. He graduated in 1967, but felt so uncomfortable that he skipped the ceremony. He briefly attended Ocean County College, but he dropped out of there as well. So, so he, <laughs> he knew, he knew, didn't he? He, he did. He had a calling. Yeah, definitely. But you know, you get it's almost like a parallel here with uh, Janis Joplin, isn't it? A real misfit here. Somebody yeah. wasn't particularly popular by the sound of it. That's true, know? yeah. Uh, Springsteen grew up hearing fellow New Jersey singer Frank Sinatra on the radio. He became interested in music himself, though, at the age of seven when he saw Elvis Presley on The Ed Sullivan Show. It's either Elvis or The Beatles on The Ed Sullivan that sort of kickstart everybody, isn't it? Completely. Uh, soon after this, his mother rented him a guitar for $6 a week, but it failed to provide him with the instant gratification that he'd wanted. We've all been there. In 1964, inspired by seeing The Beatles, here we go, on oh. The Ed Sullivan Show, he bought his first guitar for $18.95 at the Western Auto Appliance Store. He then started playing with a band called The Rogues at local venues such as Elks Lodge in Freehold. Wow. Easy for me to say. <laughs> in late 1964, Springsteen's mother took out a loan to buy her 16-year-old son a $60 Kent guitar, an act he subsequently remembered in his song The Wish. So the Kent guitar, uh, that's where it, the same brand that Bowie plays when he's got the eye patch on. And ah, all right, kind of yeah, thing. okay. I mean, $60, that's quite a sum in 64. It's proper, isn't it? So the following year, he went to the house of Texan Marion Vineyard, who sponsored young bands in the town. They helped him become the lead guitarist and subsequently one of the lead singers of the Castiles. His first gig with the Castiles uh, possibly was at a trailer park on New Jersey Route 34. The Castiles recorded two original songs at a public recording studio in Brick Township and played a variety of venues, including Café Wah in Greenwich Village. That's a feather in the cap. Yeah, a call for conscription in the United States Army when he was 18, Springsteen failed a physical examination and didn't serve in the Vietnam War. He had suffered a concussion in a motorcycle accident when he was 17, and this together with his his crazy behaviour at induction gave him a classification of 4F, which made him unacceptable for service. I think that Iggy Pop did the same thing, you know. Did he? I think when he was uh, actually called up, he said, like, drop your pants, you know. Right. And he dropped his pants on, and he didn't... This The story that I read, he didn't have any undies on. As we know, Iggy Pop doesn't no. particularly get on too well with underpants anyway. <laughs> and not even when he's wearing see-through pants like no. he was on the white room oh, okay, uh, with right. Mark Radcliffe. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, he, apparently he just, like, he, right. he took his pants down and started jumping around. Right. And they're just thinking, right, okay, get out. No chance. (laughs) In the late 60s, Springsteen briefly played in a power trio known as Earth, uh, playing in clubs in New Jersey with one major show at the Hotel Diplomat in New York City. Earth consisted of John Graham on bass and Mick Burke on drums. And from 69 through to early 71, Springsteen performed with Steel Mill. They're not the greatest band names, these, are they, really? Uh, Originally called Child, which included Danny Federici, Vinnie Lopez, Vinnie Roslin, and later Steve Van Zandt and Robin Thompson. Join this time he performed regularly at venues on the Jersey Shore in Richmond, Virginia, Nashville, Tennessee and a set of gigs in California. 
Other acts followed over the next two years as Springsteen sought to shape a unique style. Dr. Zoom and the Sonic Boom. I like that. That's a good name. Yeah. Uh, the Sundance Blues Band, Rubbish, and the Bruce Springsteen Band. He's given up Shocking. at that point, really, hasn't he? Uh, with the addition of pianist David Sanctius, is that right? Yeah, uh, yeah. The core of what would later become the East Street Band was formed, with occasional temporary additions such as horn sections and Southside Johnny Leon on harmonica. Springsteen acquired the nickname The Boss during this time when his bands played club gigs uh, because he took on the task of collecting the band's wages every night and dealing it out amongst his bandmates. The nickname also reportedly sprang from the games of Monopoly that Springsteen would play with other Jersey Shore musicians. Apparently, Springsteen isn't too keen on this nickname uh, due to his dislike of bosses, but seemed to have grudgingly accepted it. Previously, he'd been nicknamed The Doctor. (laughs) Now, you you can't always choose a nickname that you're given, but this this is funny. I mean, I you know, we're, we're loath to talk about Man United, really. You're Liverpool, yes. I'm City. But there is a great story about when Paul Ince uh, turned up at Man United and he started calling himself the governor. Yeah, he did, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. And he was going down and selling it and people saying, Paul! I'm sorry, uh, I'm the governor. Call me the governor. So, sorry, governor. And, and apparently Brian Robson who was who was called the governor? Yes. Got wind of this and grabbed him by the throat and uh, just warned him off his Did nickname. Did he really? So they're important things. Yeah, these nicknames they and, they, and they can stick for life. You they know. Can. I mean, doctor's not bad, is it? I mean, I don't know. You wouldn't really be upset at being called the boss, though, would you? You know. No, but like you know, he's an authoritarian figure, and he's like Mr. Blue Collar Worker. Well, okay, so fair enough, Mark. Fair enough, you made Bruce. your point there. Anyway, Springsteen's prolific songwriting ability brought his skills to the attention of several people who were about to change his life. New managers Mike Appel and Jim Cretin. Uh, who in turn brought him to the attention of Columbia Records and their talent scout John Hammond. Now, he'd auditioned Springsteen in the May of 72. A very famous character, John Hammond. Yeah. So Springsteen was signed to Columbia Records in 72 by Clive Davis on the recommendation of Hammond, who'd also signed Bob Dylan to the same label Mm. a decade earlier. Despite the expectations of Columbia executives that Springsteen would record an acoustic album, he brought many of his New Jersey-based colleagues into the studio with him, thus forming the E Street Band although he wouldn't be formally named that for several months. His debut album, Greetings from Asbury Park, New Jersey, released in January 1973, established him as a critical favourite, although the sales, has to be said, were slow. Can we just say here, I mean, you're a fan of Bruce Springsteen. I'm not a Springsteen fan at all. I do like Nebraska, but that's not typical. That's atypical, I think. Yeah, and I mean, there's no denying that Born to Run is just one of the great, great songs, I think, and one of the great records. But but I've been to see him twice, Mm. and... And I walked out both times. And this is <laughs> apropos of nothing, really. But it's funny because people are so, so emotional about Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. And it ju- and I just do not get it. And you can say exactly the same thing for those who do and don't get Bowie. Yeah, of course. You know, it's that kind of audience. I've been seeing once... And it was uh, because it was a commission. I was doing it for a broadsheet. And I took my sister, who is mad on Springsteen. She is absolutely potty on him. And he played for about three hours, as I'd heard he was going to do. And it was a bit. But luckily, I was able to write the review while he was on stage. (laughs) (laughs) Two birds with one stone, though, Mark. Yeah, very clever. Every cloud and all that. Anyway, what's all this got to do with Bowie, you might ask? Loads. So Bowie had first seen Springsteen at Max's Kansas City. And I think it was August 72, where he was just solo opening for Dave Van Ronk, I think. Right. And he said later that he was so knocked out by Springsteen that he wanted to do one of his songs. So, in November 1973, uh, Bowie recorded Growing Up, which was originally from uh, Greetings from Asbury Park, released earlier that year, at Olympic Studios in London during the early sessions for Diamond Dogs. Ron Wood plays lead guitar on this, which there's a myth, wasn't there, about Ron Wood appearing on Diamond Dogs? This yeah. is where it came from, I think. Yeah, OK. Uh, Bowie's version finally appeared as a bonus track on the 1990 reissue of Pinups. 
Now, here's one of those... Uh, people often talk about the, a cover version being better than the original. Mm. And for me, I suppose it's oh, just yeah. naturally. Well, it, it would be. I do, and I actually do love the Springsteen version, the original mm. version of It's Hard to Be a Saint in the City, but the mm. Bowie one, I absolutely love. But not, not, I don't think Bowie was that keen. But anyway, uh, having already recorded Growing Up, Bowie went back to Greetings from Asbury Park uh, to the album to cover It's Hard to Be a Saint in the City during the Young American sessions at Sigma Sound. During the session, Springsteen popped into the studio to make a surprise visit. Bowie recalled later a Philadelphia DJ who was quite a supporter of mine said, you're doing these Springsteen numbers. Do you want me to get Bruce down? So you have to remember as well that Springsteen was nobody at this time, was he? No. You know? Well, you can tell that by the way, what happens yeah. next. Yeah. So according to the website Pushing Ahead of the Dame, which is a mine of information, uh, Springsteen came to Sigma Sound on the 25th of November, 74, and what was supposed to be the last night of the Young American sessions. His escort was the Philadelphia DJ, as mentioned, Ed CK, who'd brought Springsteen along at the request of Tony Visconti. Now, apparently, Visconti thought Springsteen would be interested in hearing the cover and even playing on it. Okay, so contacted around noon that day, Springsteen hitched a ride to Asbury Park, then took a trailways bus to Philadelphia and, upon arriving, hung out with the bums in the station until he was picked up. Right. So, no money. A journalist, Mike McGrath, wrote, Bruce is stylishly attired in a stained brown leather jacket with about 17 zippers and a pair of hoodlum jeans. He looked like he just fell out of a bus station. Which he had. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. You know. uh, McGrath goes on to t- talk about Bowie. Uh, Bowie arrived at the studio an hour later. McGrath said of the impression that he made, uh, Bowie is a tall, skeletal leprechaun. That's sort of like, how can he be a tall leprechaun, Mark? <laughs> is that an oxymoron or <laughs> just a moron? Red beret tipped extremely to one side, the other revealing a loose patch of orange hair, leaning away from ears that uncannily resemble a Vulcan's up close. Intense hawk eyes. If they fix on you friendly, it warms the room. Unfriendly or even questioningly, you're forced to turn away from them. Red velvet suspenders over high-waisted black pants. Oh, and a white pullover <laughs> sweater. Oh, complete the bizarre outfit, which, like any other, grows on you as the hours pass. <laughs> That's good writing. A bit of a disclaimer at the end. This Mike McGrath, I don't know anything about him, but I'm liking his style very much. The initial meeting was polite but strained. Springsteen was shy and reserved, while Bowie admitted years later that he was so cracked up on drugs and worn down by his breakneck work schedule that he found it hard to relate to anyone. Still, the two found common ground complaining about stage jumpers, and Bowie complimented Springsteen by saying there was no other American artist he was interested in covering. Yeah, if you have a look online, there is that conversation about you know about stage jumpers. Is it's there? A, it's a, yeah, it's, right. a, it's a weird, you know. Anyway, Bowie tried to do a vocal take. He noted it wasn't late enough in the evening. He said, "I won't be able to record anything till about half." past five and he drifted in and out of the conversations perking up when the talk turned to ufos springsteen left at five in the morning to go to a diner on broad street but we explained later this is the uh, dj brought bruce down and i was out of my wig i just couldn't relate to him at all it was a bad time for us to have met i could see what he was thinking who is this weird guy and i was thinking what do I say to normal people? There was a real impasse. I, I still think he was one of the better American songwriters around in those days. He also added that I remember chickening out of playing it. I didn't want to play it to him because I wasn't happy with it anyway. And talking to Radio One in 1979, Bowie said of the song, After I heard this track, I never rode the subway again. It's called Saint in the City. That really scared the living ones out of me, that did. Wow, OK, great. So this is now from uh, Ultimate Classic Rock in August uh, 2016, where um, Tony Visconti expanded on that meeting right okay so the setup said it's well known amongst David Bowie fans that a cover of Springsteen's It's Hard to Be a Saint in the City 
City was among the tracks initially intended for the Young Americans album. In a new interview, producer Tony Visconti pinpoints a meeting between the two performances as the moment when Bowie abruptly abandons plans. This is what he said. David was quite taken by meeting Bruce, Visconti recalled in a feature published in The Enemy. We played Saint to him and he kept a poker face the whole time. He said nothing when it was finished. David took him into another room for a private chat. (laughs) I wonder if that's one of those private chats that involves blows being thrown. Of course it didn't. But by the time Bruce left, he was more pleasant and said his goodbyes to the rest of us. David and I never worked on Saint after that, although it was finished or re-recorded eventually with someone else. Right, so Visconti's impression of the meeting confirms Bowie's own version of events. He was very shy, he wrote years later. I remember sitting in the corridor with him talking about his lifestyle, which was very Dylan-esque, you know, moving from town to town with a guitar on his back, all that kind of thing. That's Bowie talking about Springsteen, of course. Yeah, and he continued, anyway, he didn't like what we were doing. I remember that. At least he didn't express much enthusiasm. I guess he must have thought he was all kind of odd. I was in another universe at the time. I've got this extraordinary, strange photograph of us all. I look like I'm made out of wax. <laughs> that, that is funny, you know, because it's, you do look at Bowie in Cracked Actor and mm. you look at some of those photographs, like uh, particularly the ones where he's with John Lennon yeah, uh, and uh, yeah. Simon and Garfunkel. Mm. Yeah, the uh, and, Grammys. And he, and he does look like a waxwork in that as well. And you think, oh, he looks really, really weird then. But if you think the, the ultra-healthy Davy Bowie, years down the line, mm. must himself look back and go, Oh my God! Well, he did it. He did exactly that same for David Live, the cover. Didn't he did, he? yeah, yeah. He said yeah. he looked like death warmed up, didn't he? On that, yeah. Colin Sandman couldn't relate the same person, could he? When he no. first met him, he said, "God, eat something for God's yeah. sake." Yeah, that's it terrible. Uh, anyway, Bowie's cover of It's Hard to Be a Saint in the City ultimately came out as part of the Sound of Vision box. Springsteen returned the favour earlier this year, which had been uh, 2016, covering Rebel Rebel uh, gig as a uh, tribute after Bowie's death. So Springsteen's live cover of Rebel Rebel with the East Street Band took place in Pittsburgh on 16th of January 2016. Springsteen said, Not enough people know it, but he recorded our music way, way back in the very beginning, 1973. He rang me up and I visited him down in Philly where he was making Young Americans. He covered some of my music and he was a big supporter of ours. I took the Greyhound bus to Philly. That's how early on it was. Anyway, we're thinking of him. Mutual then. Yeah, definitely. Eventually. <laughs> <laughs> 
S is for another legend, SpongeBob SquarePants. Now, oh. I can say that safe in the knowledge of being uh, uh, corrected by anybody who wants to, because I've never seen it, Oh, Bob. my God, seriously? Not even seen the Bowie episode. Oh, come on. You may well look like that, sheepish. Oh, sorry, I mean, mate. okay, the Bowie episode, but you've not even seen it. You've not even seen the film. The films are great. Oh, oh mate. Anyway, for anybody... I'm too busy watching, you know, like Citizen Kane. Oh, st- and, well, yeah. And, you know, Seven Seals. Just stop that. Like I mean, that. do you know what? For, I was going to say, for anybody who doesn't know, i.e. you, mm. uh, SpongeBob SquarePants is an American animated TV series created by Stephen Hillenburg for Nickelodeon. Now, Hillenburg was a marine science educator, so you was see he? where it came from. Right. The series chronicles the adventures of the Titanic character and his various friends in the fictional underwater city of Bikini Bottom. It's so, so popular. As of late 2017, the media franchise has generated $13 billion in merchandise revenue for Nickelodeon. I, I see I'm already drawn in because I thought of an underwater city called Bikini Bottom. <laughs> Come on. That's brilliant. <laughs> that is brilliant. I'm giving it you, mate. Right. Oh, you can forget the seventh seal. You can forget all that. <laughs> uh, the series has won a variety of awards, including six Annie Awards, eight Golden Reel Awards, four Emmy Awards, 15 Kids Choice Awards and two BAFTAs Children Awards. So there. So the characters now. Now, do you know what? We'll have to just uh, recap these characters just for you. Yeah. So SpongeBob himself, a yellow sea sponge who physically resembles a rectangular cleaning sponge uh, clad in brown shorts, a white collared shirt and a red tie. He lives in a pineapple house, works as a fry cook at a fast food restaurant called the Krusty Krab. Okay, now at this point in time, having never seen the programme, I will admit that I have actually met SpongeBob, but I will tell you about that later on, okay? Uh, Patrick Starr, a pink starfish who lives under a rock and wears flowered swimming trunks. His most prominent character trait is that he's of extremely low intelligence. (laughs) I'm going to relate to this fella. He is best friend with SpongeBob. Oh, he's great. And you've got Squidward, or Squidward Tentacles, give him his full name, an octopus with a large nose who works as a cashier at Krusty Krab. He's SpongeBob's next-door neighbour with a very sarcastic, dry sense of humour. He believes himself to be a talented artist and musician, but nobody else does. <laughs> oh, I am liking this. And Mr. Krabs with a K, a red crab who owns and operates a crusty crab restaurant where SpongeBob works. He is self-content, cunning, and obsessed with the value and essence of money. He lives in an anchor with his teenage daughter, Pearl, who is a whale. <laughs> now, now, obviously, I can't discuss this with you, but it always uh, upset me slightly or worried me that Mr. Krabs' big seller was a uh, Krabby Patty. We basically... Uh, Cannibalism going here, Mark. Oh, you know? right. It's very dark. Yeah. Anyway, Plankton and Karen love Plankton. The owners of the Chum Bucket, an unsuccessful restaurant located uh, directly across the street from the Krusty Krab. Their business is a commercial failure, basically, because they sell mostly inedible foods made out of chum. Chum. So are we talking about the stuff that they throw yes. in for sharks yes. and all that yeah, kind yeah. of stuff? Right, to so draw them over. Okay. Gary the Snail. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Look the fact this is news to you. <laughs> SpongeBob's oh, pet. I'm in. I'm, I'm going to go oh. get the DVD, mate. SpongeBob pets. <laughs> SpongeBob's pet sea snail who lives with him in their pineapple home and vocalises like a cat. Depicted as a level-headed character, Gary often serves as a voice of reason for SpongeBob and solves problems that his owner cannot. <laughs> He's a bit like the cat in uh, Hong Kong Fooey. You know, that, the I'm brain's behind the opposite. Oh, God, I'm going. <laughs> How old are I you, am Bob? Going. Just stop it. Just stop it. Anyway, you need to watch, watch the fil- first film. I will. And if you don't like it, then we can't do this anymore. I'm in, I'm in mate. I'm in. So anyway, the Bowie episode, another one you haven't seen. So uh, this was called Atlantis Square Pantis. Uh, aired on Nickelodeon in the US in November 2007. 
Promoted by the uh, TV company as the first made-for-TV film of the series, Atlantis Square Pantis is an extended episode and goes on for 45 minutes. Tom Kenny, the voice of SpongeBob, explained Atlantis Square Pantis is an adventurous quest, kind of a story about SpongeBob and his friends journeying and discovering the lost continent of Atlantis, which is ruled by a character voiced by Davy Bowie. So, the film stars the series' main cast members, including Kenny, Bill Fagabaki, Patrick, uh, Roger Bumpass, Squidward, Clancy Brown, Mr. Krabs, Carolyn Lawrence, uh, Sandy Cheeks and Mr. Lawrence Plankton. In addition to the regular cast, David Bowie guest starred as the voice of the Atlantean King, Lord Royal Highness, keeper and protector, riches, power, the arts, scientific achievement and the world's oldest bubble. <laughs> this is genius. <laughs> I also love uh, Sandy Cheeks. I know. <laughs> is that, is that Didn't having mention been sat that. down on the beach? Is it, uh, just I mean, the mental imagery. Anyway, uh, Bowie's character does not sing. However, he lands the best line for SpongeBob and Patrick. I'm just going to leave you two friendly strangers alone with our most beloved ancient and fragile Atlantean relic. Which is the old bubble, of course. Right, So okay. uh, we should probably just have a quick look at the plot here. Uh, SpongeBob finds the missing half of an ancient medallion believed to be a relic from the lost city of Atlantis. He brings his find to the Bikini Bottom Museum where the other half's on display. The two sides are reunited and suddenly a magical van appears that beckons to take Spongebob to the legendary city. Uh, Patrick, Sandy, Squidward and Mr Krabs all join him in the van and head for Atlantis. When the van finally gets to the city, everybody's greeted by Atlantis King himself. Bowie, a.k.a. Lord Royal Highness. Just brilliant. And uh, actually, we need to credit at this point in time Gideon Coe, who right. did, who, who, who tweeted, uh, S is for SpongeBob SquarePants. Oh, he did? Yeah, and he so, did. Gid, good work, mate. Yeah, Thank you very much Gid. indeed. Uh, well, this is from Bowie. He wrote this on a blog. He said, it's happened at last. I've hit the holy grail of animation gigs. Yesterday, I got to be a character on, ta-da, SpongeBob SquarePants. Oh, yeah. We, the family, are thrilled. Nothing else needs to happen this year. Well, this week anyway. My character in this special long form, I think half hour special, is called Lord Royal Highness. Alrighty. That's brilliant. He was yeah. so thrilled. Uh, Paul Tibbet, who was the supervising producer of SpongeBob, explained their choice of Bowie for the show. He said, We wanted a sort of Willy Wonka kind of a character. We thought he'd be perfect for the role. When Bowie agreed to the part, he revealed that he and his daughter were enormous SpongeBob fans and frequently watched the show together. Tibbet recorded the voice session with Bowie, this is great as well, mm. in Philip Glass's New York studio, where the musician, referred to his team as DB, uh, showed up with a few voice options to choose I from. I love that, like he prepared for it. Of course he love it. Tom Kenny said, the people who watch are often surprising to me and unexpected. You don't picture David Bowie, for instance, the thin white duke, sitting on the couch in his pyjamas, eating Cheerios, watching Spongebob cartoons. With our little basic cable budget, we could never afford to pay a legend like Bowie what he's worth. But just the fact he wants to be in something that his kid likes is what really gets the ball rolling. Well, we've already been through the, uh, his obsession with uh, Uncle Floyd. Yeah, that's right. Which yeah, is like the really surreal right. kind of like Pee-wee-esque yeah, uh, forerunner, well, to Pee-wee and, and very other surreal kind of kiddies things. Yeah. And again, you know, I mean, I haven't seen it. You have. You love it. Um, but a lot of these things do work on two levels, don't they? Like oh, the definitely. Sim- like the Simpsons do. Well, it was like, yeah, if you, oh, anyway, if you watch, uh, I mean, we watch episodes, especially when the kids were young, they'd just be howling out laughing at the other uh, sort of slapstick bits. And then we'd be laughing at the other stuff. And yeah. they'd say, what are you laughing at? Then that's mm. not even funny. It was one of those. Brilliant. Anyway, uh, the episode with Bowie and... Uh, uh, drew 9.2 million viewers, so it's popular. In 2017, SpongeBob the Musical started on Broadway with a set of 18 songs written by high-profile artists ranging from the Flaming Lips, Aerosmith, Steven Tyler and Joe Perry, 
to Panic at the Disco, Sarah Bareilles, is it? And yeah. David Bowie. When director Tina Landau reached out to Bowie in 2012 for the musical, he said he was very interested, but he didn't have time to write an original song for it. Uh, I'm not sure where he was with his health at that point, Landau said, uh, but he told us he wanted to contribute and asked us to go through his catalogue and see if there was a song there that we could adapt. Hoping to find a lesser-known Bowie song, Landau stumbled upon No Control, a B-side from the singer's 1995 Brian Eno collaboration, One Outside. It seemed like quintessential Bowie and fit thematically with what we were doing, she says, referring to the show's apocalyptic plot. So with his blessing, we started adapting the music and lyrics to fit the show. So there you have the Bowie-Spongebob connection. <laughs> Brilliant. I will go and watch it. But uh, my, my uh, only connection with Spongebob is uh, down thanks to, um, well, the legendary Frank Sidebottom. Oh, yeah. Now, there will be people out there who don't know who Frank Sidebottom is, particularly mm. anybody uh, from America or Europe. But, I mean, he was this uh, colourful character. Again, I mentioned Pee-wee. Mm. Now, Chris Seavey was a guy behind Frank Sidebottom. He'd previously been in the band called of freshies who yeah. very nearly had a, a, a hit with uh, why she's a girl from the Virgin Megastore checkout desk. Yeah, it was doing really well. They had to change the name of it to a certain Megastore mm. checkout desk because of the product placement. Didn't quite make it. An amazing character, Chris Seavey. Yeah, he, I think he did the the world's first computer game that you could uh, load off the back of a record. Yeah, Is on that the ZX right? Spectrum, I think. Yeah, in about eighty one, I think. Yeah, B, a B amazing. side of his record. Yeah. Uh, and he was also the mascot for Man City, Moonchester, the original one. But Frank Sidebottom, uh, Chris Seavey passed away a few years ago now, mm. and there is a statue to him in the uh, in the village of Timpley, which is, of course, where you live. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, but I, I go back a long way. I put the mm. freshies on uh, uh, with some mates at the Cypress Tavern in the late 70s in Manchester. And uh, and then he came up with this character which had a massive round papier-mâché head, yeah. big eyes, and and it just it rested on his head, mm. and he had a, um, a swimming clip on his nose. So he would talk like, "Oh, yeah. blimey!" And he would and he would say that. Forgive me if you already know uh, Frank Sidebottom is, but I've just got to explain this. And for those of you who are out there thinking, mm, "I don't know him," but there's another character called Frank, which is Michael Fassbinder in yeah. John Ronson's yeah, yeah, film. Yeah. Mm. Well, that was uh, John Ronson who wrote that uh, screenplay. Yeah. He actually was in Frank Sidebottom's Oh Blimey Big Band. That's right. As a keyboard player yeah, at one yeah. point in time. So it all fits. And I do remember John Ronson uh, just mentioning on Twitter that he was writing a, a film based on the life of Frank Sidebottom. And I just jokingly said to him, all right, who's going to play me then? Because I used to hang out with Frank Sidebottom mm. all the time. He used to go to the football matches with the Timberley Big Shorts yeah. on Sunday. He was a manager. And I used to uh, drive in various places, Chris Seavey. He worked on a comic that I worked on called Oink. Yeah. And also, I used to be a bit part player, usually in the big fight scene, at the end of his pantomimes. Right. So he would do all these things at Timberley Labour Club. And um, sadly, it was one of the last occasions that I ever went to see him. He'd, he'd already been running the open-top bus around Timperley, mm. which was absolutely hilarious. I mean, some of the funniest things I've ever witnessed were on those trips. I'll give you a for instance. He was, uh, he was on the top of the open-top uh, bus with a loud hailer, and we were flying down, is it Stamford Avenue, the, the, the big wide road? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Leading yes. up to Aldringham from Brooklands. Yeah. And uh, at one point, there's a branch coming up behind him, and I'm thinking, that's going to knock his block off. That is absolutely going to knock his block off. And I'm just thinking, duck. And, of course, as soon as the branch comes, he ducks. And then he gets back up again without batting an eyelid, <laughs> couldn't bat his eyelid. So he'd, he'd been up and down there loads of time, worked out exactly at what point, right, as I pass that lamppost, I need to duck. And he did it. So that was brilliant. Brilliant. He also pulled up at some crossroads. 
and uh, a bloke came around the corner and he asked a question that you never ever ask of a dog owner. He went, Oi, mister, where'd you get your dog? <laughs> to which he replied, Fuck off. <laughs> Uh, to which Frank replied, oh, he must be from Hale, <laughs> which is a really posh part uh, of this area, yeah. just around the corner from where that actually happened. Um, so that gives you an idea of where Sidebottom was at. But he, he did uh, the Timperley lectures, mm. and, and I went to see them. And I probably saw the last one that he ever did um, uh, before he passed away. But at the end of it it was just absolute genius so he's doing it then all of a sudden spongebob squarepants comes marching down the middle of the uh, the it's only a small village yeah, hall yeah, yeah, cool. marching down the middle of the crowd shouting at him right and he's giving it all oh oh no spongebob's here what are you doing here i think you're not on the guest list if you paid get out and they have a fight right so him frank jumps off the stage they have a fight and then he starts kicking spongebob up the arse he kicks and now frank is not no he's got a nasty temper on him but he's never normally violent no he grabbed hold of spongebob and he kicked open the fire doors like you, you're doing a you know a western yeah, film yeah, or something yeah. and turfs him out <laughs> and shuts the doors and then does that with his hands, you right. know, just and then goes, oh, that's SpongeBob, I'll have him, you know. And uh, so that's the closest I've ever come Brilliant. to SpongeBob SquarePants. <laughs> and I would imagine that having said all this, that Frank Sidebottom, Chris Seavey, was a fan of SpongeBob. So if he thought it was funny, it's funny. I'll give you that one, Bob, all day long. So that's it for this episode of the A to Z of David Bowie. But once again, before you go, if you'd like to support us along the way and be a member of an exclusive Bowie club, you can. And here's how. There's an exclusive Bowie members club called Cheap Things. And for just $5 a month, wow, you can be part of it. Right. So now you're thinking $5 isn't much, but what exactly will I get for my hard-earned cash? Well, in short, you'll get lots of great new exclusive material delivered to your door. Well, computer actually, Mark. Via a system called Patreon. That's right. Mark, Patreon is a payment system that allows you to contribute your monthly subscription and offers you a portal to access the exclusive material. Materials such as interviews with Bowie's cohorts and friends, there'll be regular film Bowie quizzes, Bowie guitar tutorials, unreleased archive written material, competitions, and perhaps most impressively, short films featuring the Cheap Things team. Ah, that'll be me, Mark, Howard Nock, and Jason Reed visiting various Bowie places of interest and much more besides. All this for just $5 a month. So if you can't resist, simply go to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash cheap things, or one word, and join up. There's also a website, bowiecheapthings.com. Book early. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.